They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 103 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. I'm Aaron Harris and I'm your host, a really great episode uh, today with Dan Sanchez, and uh, he is the director of content over at FEE, which is the Foundation for Economic Education, which if you don't know about them, they're really, you know, old school OG uh, libertarians as far as the modern American libertarian movement. Um, uh, the great Leonard Reed, of course, uh, was FEE for a long time, and uh They've done so much great work over the years, and uh, uh, one of the people um, that uh, Fee has uh, helped uh, platform is, is Dan Sanchez, and he has written tons of stuff. Um, he's done some work for the Mises Institute, uh, where he launched the Mises Academy. Uh, he's a writing teacher. He's taught that over at Praxis. Uh, he's written for, of course, Fee.org, Mises.org, Antiwar.com. Um, just all kinds of other places. Uh, he's on Twitter and Substack and, uh, links to Dan and his stuff will be over at decentralizedrevolution.com slash one Oh three, including uh, two or three articles that we, uh, talk about in this episode, uh, that, uh, you know, he's done a lot of thinking, uh, about, you know, how to communicate libertarian ideas and, and how the, uh, libertarian movement should uh, uh, should market itself. And, uh, you know, we've got a big job and there's more than one way to skin a cat. And uh, Dan was uh, intrigued by uh, what we've done here at the Mises Caucus with Project Decentralized Revolution, uh, which is our, you know, strategy to uh, do the decentralized thing, to do issues coalitions, uh, to do local candidates, to build a liberty culture, and to not sort of play the respectability politics game, uh, to not, you know, go all in on the White House uh, every four years and that's it, which, of course, that is a the longest of long shots. And, um, you know, the party, Libertarian Party, has done a lot of great work. There's been, of course, Ron Paul, Harry Brown. I even like, uh, especially Gary Johnson's first campaign, we've had a lot of great um, presidential candidates, but um, I think it's... Uh, you know, really diminishing returns. Um, it, it hasn't really uh, resulted in much of a uh, a growth of the party, of getting people uh, in the trenches, working hard for the liberty movement. And uh, we don't know if Project Decentralized Revolution is going to work, but we think it has a chance. It's starting to work in a lot of places. Um, just the, you know, the the shoots are coming up through the grass. You see the green uh, in things like defend the guard and, um, you know, uh, decriminalize Denver, which, you know, uh, which we helped out with, I think, three, four years ago now, which became the uh, uh, mushroom uh, psilocybin um, uh, decrim in uh, Colorado for the whole state after we helped put it, put it over the uh, uh, top in Denver. So uh, you'll want to read that document that uh, Mike uh, Heiss and David Hines and myself uh, wrote, um, really lays it all out. Dan really liked it. Of course, we talked about uh, uh, Jeff Charles was our guest back on episode 98. That's what um, convinced him to uh, cut ties with the GOP and come on over to the LP. So uh, a lot of really smart people are looking at what we're trying to do and uh, giving us feedback and uh, helping us out, uh, at least uh, uh, in terms of ideas and talking about things. And 
and Dan is one of them. So I urge you to um, uh, check out his stuff. Uh, and you may even want to go over to decentralizedrevolution.com slash 103 uh, before you listen to this interview to, to read those couple of articles um, that, that we talk about just so you have a little more uh, context. But uh, he's a really thoughtful guy, really uh, nice guy. And uh, I really uh, uh, enjoyed the chance to talk to him for uh, about an hour here. And uh, I know you're going to enjoy getting to know him as well. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on, uh, Dan. I have been aware of uh, Fee uh, for a long time, having uh, been converted to libertarianism by Walter Williams. And, uh, you know, he used to guest host the Rush Limbaugh show when I was a teenager. And uh, uh, Rush wasn't um, quite as neocon as uh, he ended up being back in the early 90s. But when I heard Walter Williams, I, I really got excited and laissez-faire books. And then at laissez-faire books, you know, you discover iPencil and Leonard Reed. And so I, I'm familiar with what Fee has been doing for a long time. So tell us about you, how you got to Fee, and then let's talk about the uh, uh, the background of uh, Fee. Sure. So yeah, so I, I work at Fee, which is stands for the Foundation for Economic Education, which is the first ever liberty education organization founded in 1946. I'm the director of content there. I manage our team of commentators. Uh, your audience might be familiar with um, Ben Williams, uh, aka Prax Ben, yep. um, and then uh, Maggie Anders, aka Liberty Anders. They're both on my team. I'm also a writer, and I've written lots of essays for Fee, and and in the past as well for places like Mises.org and Antiwar.com. Yeah, great. Where did you? Uh, how did you get into? Uh, where did you discover liberty? I, you know, I got uh, from laissez-faire books. I ordered Murray Rothbard's For a New Liberty, and that that did it. Everyone has a slightly different story. So, how did you get into this into this world? Well, I'm very happy to be on a podcast named after and inspired by Ludwig von Mises because Mises was really my um, my is my intellectual hero, and um, and he. Um, I discovered his works through Mises.org um, and, and the Mises Institute. And once I discovered his writings, it just made perfect sense to me. And so mm -hmm. I just became a voracious reader. Um, I've read every available book he's ever written. And um, I also, I got involved in the Mises forums uh, that were on the site at that time. Uh, th that led me to writing for Mises.org and eventually working for the Mises Institute where I launched the Mises Academy. Um, and, and now I work at Fee, which is also a very Misesian organization. We, uh, we promote Austrian economics in our content. In fact, Mises himself was closely associated with Fee. We have a picture in the Fee office of uh, the main Fee staff at the time, and, and Mises is right there in the picture. Uh, he wrote and spoke for Fee. The manuscript of Human Action was actually typed at Fee, um, and... Mm -hmm. We facilitated the publication of Human Action by placing a huge pre-order for a lot of copies. I knew a little about about that connection because I think that uh, I think it was Murray Rothbard's famous line. Uh, I, I think I've heard Walter Block say it that you know a, 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 there was a time when you could fit every you know libertarian or certainly Austro-libertarian in the world uh, were probably all in the United States and you could probably all fit them in Murray's apartment. You know, I don't know <laughs> if that was the exact thing. So at the time uh, uh, I guess Mises would have been uh, in New York um, and, you know, Leonard Reed was one of those guys. I think I've heard him described as like an evangelist for Liberty. And uh, so tell us, uh, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it because I, I would, I would recommend people, you know, getting into, uh, just their own research about Leonard Reed, but like, so I didn't know it was quite founded that early in 1946. So, uh, you know, right after the war, uh, a lot of, uh, American troops are still, you know, waiting for a boat ride home and, uh, he's, he's founding, uh, fee. So, uh, tell us about that. Yeah. So he was at one point, um, a big proponent of the new deal. Uh, he worked for the chamber of commerce, uh, the U S chamber of commerce and, was uh, would was kind of an enforcer, an intellectual enforcer of the New Deal for the Chamber of Commerce. Hmm. And um, 
but a big turning point came when he went to straighten out one particular anti-New Deal executive named Edward Mullendore. And so Leonard Reed lectured Mullendore uh, in his <laughs> office about the glories of the New Deal. And Mullendore patiently listened and then systematically refuted Reed's whole lecture point by point and present, presented the free market alternative to the New Deal. And so that won him over instantly. It was, it was kind of like a, a St. Paul road to Damascus type moment where someone who was like one of the most uh, the prominent um, persecutors of the, of, of the light then mm -hmm. saw the light and then became like the greatest champion of, of, of the light because he, he, from then on, he was a voracious student of the freedom philosophy. He used his position at the Chamber of Commerce and his contacts to promote the freedom philosophy and, and oppose the New Deal, uh, coordinated speaking events and publications, did his own speaking and writing. Um, and then um, and then in 1946, he, he founded Fee, which was a really dark time for liberty because at, at the time, planning was, central planning was the wave of the future and, and liberty was seen as a retrograde um, philosophy of the past Past and um, but fee became the institutional hub of what um, what remained of, of freedom lovers and helped the popular understanding and prestige of the freedom philosophy recover through publications and seminars um, through uh, through like like Freeman and um, and their, their seminars at at fee and um, and including Leonard Reed's own publications like I Pencil, which converted so many people to liberty. And he never forgot his conversion experience because it deeply informed his strategy at FEE. He would give the traditional closing presentation at every FEE seminar. And what he would do is he would turn out the lights and turn on a little electric candle and he would dim it to its lowest wattage. And he pointed out that it might seem that this light was powerless against the surrounding darkness, but he turned up the brightness just enough so that possibly someone sitting in the front row might be able to find and light their own candle. And then the light would have increased 100%, and then they could help two other people find their candle, yeah. and so on and so on, until eventually, throughout the room, there would be enough light to illuminate the, the whole room. And he, that was basically his philosophy of social change, his, his theory of social change, because, and he lived it. He was a living example of it because Mullendore, um, his, because the, the candle is a, is a metaphor for mastery of the, the freedom philosophy. Yep. And, and that kind of mastery, Leonard Reed would always teach, is attractive and, and compelling. And so Mullendore's mastery of the freedom philosophy was enough to inspire Leonard Reed to light his own candle, to develop his own mastery of the freedom philosophy. And then through Fee and through his writings and, and uh, all of, of his act, uh, activism, that he helped thousands and ultimately through those thousands, millions to light their own candles. Um, yeah. And so, and that's what we're continuing to try to do today. Yeah, it, it almost sounds like a, a uh, uh, Atlas Shrugged meets the Book of Acts, right? Like he he was one of like Wesley Mouch's guys, and then he then uh, Jesus knocks him off his horse, and he yeah, that's I had kind of known like the broad outlines, but I didn't know the details of all that. So, um, but yeah, I, I, it's amazing that you know guys like you know him and and Murray and Mises, there wasn't that many, and now you know it seems to us some days. Yeah, so especially some days I'm really discouraged. I'm like, is the is the whole world mad? And why am I cursed with this knowledge of of freedom and love for it? But then again, looking back compared to where those guys were, and if they can do what they did, then certainly you know we we can do what we're doing today. Exactly. Um, and and one and it dovetails right into. It was funny because I thinking about talking to you, I, I wanted to talk about Leonard Reed. And then, you know, I said, hey, what do you want to talk about? And then you you called my attention to uh, a couple of articles. One, I think that came out back in August of last year and another one in December. Uh, one is on the the fee.org and one is on looks like your it's Liberty Letters Substack. I'm going to link to both of those on the on the show notes page. 
But uh, the one I wanted to focus in on first was uh, it's called When an Idea's Time Has Come. And I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, uh, the sort of the intro theme uh, to this podcast is uh, a few different people, Tom Woods or Dave Smith and Scott Horton saying things. And of course, uh, Ron Paul's in there a couple of times in the end is this very line, uh, an idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. And so it's perfect that you want to uh, talk about this. And especially given, you know, what we're trying to do is political. We're trying to, the Project Decentralized Revolution is to get local candidates to enter the fray of politics and to try to change things that way. And to do so with certain ideas that some people aren't familiar with, like uh, nullification and uh, uh, a lot of uh, economic principles and stuff that most people don't know. So we have a practical problem um, and its underlying um, context is, is what do people understand and what are they willing to, to do? So tell us about uh, that first article uh, about the Ron Paul speech and how you break down the significance of what he's saying. Sure. Um, and actually that article, I recently republished it on my Substack, but um, I originally published it back in 2014. Right. Okay. Um, and um, what it was about was about the, the Ron Paul revolution, the, the Ron Paul movement. And really it was a, a Leonard Reed type of um, revolution uh, that, that Ron Paul's mastery of the freedom philosophy was um, so great that it inspired a whole movement that I, I uh, like there the used to be the saying that usually begins with Ayn Rand. Nowadays, the saying is like, it usually can be, it usually begins with Ron Paul, that yeah. a lot of people trace their um, conversion to the freedom philosophy to seeing Ron Paul talk about it um, on, on the debate stage or, or, or at a speech. And, um, and so I, I really see that as what was hugely significant because obviously he didn't become president. And so it wasn't really a legislative victory, but it was a, it was a victory of, of ideas. And, and that's, that's what Fee's all about. And, and that's why I'm so intrigued by um, Michael Heiss's uh, vision for the uh, Mises Caucus and for the Libertarian Party because it's it's really inspired by the Ron Paul uh, revolution and mm -hmm. and the Ron Paul campaign, not as not not so much as uh, a, a, in terms of the political results uh, directly, but in terms of the educational results yeah. and um, and and ultimately it's what Le and what Leonard Reed taught is that it's the um, it's the the educational results and the groundwork of the um, of the ideas of the people that ultimately determines what kind of policies that mm -hmm. we have. In uh, I think Hayek, his approach, um, I think he wrote. Uh, I don't know if it was in Constitution of Liberty or the Why I'm Not a Conservative essay or somewhere in there. But uh, and you probably know, and I might have gotten that wrong. But I think his idea was like, hey, we need to. Uh, educate the academics because uh, he was kind of saying something like politics is downstream of culture. Um, maybe more so politics is downstream of what the sort of the, the opinion making class uh, believe. And so if they are all being uh, educated in university, then if we educate academia, then all of the people who, you know, will uh, go to college, they'll learn, uh, uh, good economic and libertarian principles and then the world that they are, you know, they go into the sort of the ruling class and the ideas will trickle down that way. And I don't think that's what happened. I, I think that at the same time, uh, the socialists uh, uh, had been doing that for 50 or 60 years, at least before, and they got a head start and it's pretty clear they won the battle as far as uh, academia. So we, we have the same fundamental, um, insight that, you know, what gets done in the political world has a huge link to what people believe and what they'll put up with. 
but that avenue of academia, like it, we're farther, I think we're farther away from that working now than we were when, when Hayek sort of proposed that strategy. Right. I, I think that I'm, I, I'm not that familiar with um, Hayek's, um, that particular writing of Hayek's, but I am skeptical of the route through academia because it's so captured. It's it's just so in, in bed with, with the government and so corrupted by that. That um, and and really, that's not necessarily where thought leadership comes from. Um, that that thought leadership, especially now in the digital age, it can come from you know podcasters and and, and Substack writers. And um, I mean, I think like you know Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson uh, have a lot more influence uh, than than um, than any professor uh, does, at, at least at least directly. Um, and and so I. But but I think I think the 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 point of of, inter, of intellectuals as thought leaders is is important because um, you know Murray Rothbard talked about the the opinion molders and and the intellectuals but but also warned about court intellectuals mm -hmm. that um, that you know can't be trusted because because they're so corrupted by by the government um, and and Ludwig von Mises talked about the the power of of ideas but but he didn't uh, he didn't limit it to um, like any particular like academia like he 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 believed that it was every citizen uh duty to familiarize themselves with uh with the basics of of, of economics that it's not that it can't be relegated to to some mm -hmm. elite class of uh, of of academics and um and and leonard reed taught that really it's it's only uh, what he called an infinitesimal minority that um, that really masters the the ideas that that lead the public for any kind of um, major social movement. So, like the the American founding, um, it's 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 not that like everyone in America like understood John Locke and um, but but the founders did and they're and and the um, and the, um, the, the deep thinkers of the time did, and they led the whole country to embrace liberty. Yeah. So there's a, a quote uh, from that article from Mises. It says, victorious minorities sometimes owe their success to their technological superiority, but this does not alter the case. In the long run, it's impossible to withhold the better arms from the members of the majority. And so I think he's basically saying that a few people, like I think the state actually, I think in Oppenheimer's book, The State, he basically posited the guys who figured out how to breed and raise horses could go from farming community to farming community and demand, uh, you know, basically taxation every year because they had the, they had weapons and, and were on horse. Uh, so eventually uh, the state kind of came from that of them sort of training people to be obedient to that but if every village said no then what are they going to do and so i think that's kind of what mises is getting at and and then you dovetail it into i've never been able to pronounce the the writer's name uh, a guy who wrote politics of obedience uh uh talking talk about that concept of you know the fact that the that the guards running the prison are in charge, but really, why are they? So, what what is going on ideologically that allows a few people, who ultimately don't have enough power to control everybody, to control people? Mm -hmm. um, Etienne de la Boitie, um, who was a um, a French writer, and um, Rothbard was very influenced by um, by him. He wrote a um, a foreword to um, to a publication of his book, that he he talked about how the the um, rulers of any society always by necessity outnumber vastly the, the ruled, um, and 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 Rothbard talks about how that's just a function of the fact that um, being a predator predation must um presupposes production yep. and um and so so for like a, a parasitic ruling class to to subsist that that they 
that they have to subsist on an, a, a large enough productive base and that large productive base necessarily like vastly outnumbers the, the, the rulers. And so, so that's why court intellectuals are, are so important is because they, they simply cannot rule by, by force alone because, because they're so outnumbered. So they have to um, weave apologia for their rule and and persuade the, um, the the ruled that that being ruled is is to some um, to some extent like the the best thing for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, that's what um, you know. That's what public education does. That's what uh, uh, just ideologies of uh, theories of government that you know. That's why I. I recently edited a book, uh, Dave Benner's biography of Thomas Paine, who I think you also mentioned in this article or, or the other one. Um, and uh, the uh, basically uh, the uh, sort of the mythology around uh, the Constitution and uh, the the story of of why this happened and and what we're doing. Like uh, you know, Thomas Paine actually had you know, differing views than a lot of the, the founding fathers, but even in uh, kind of the constitutional convention and in the federalist papers, there's all these high flown theories that kind of explain, Oh, we're basically, we're doing this for, for the good of everybody and the good of society. And, you know, the constitution of the United States is a lot better than a lot of things, but it has its flaws, uh, obviously, and there's significant evidence and analysis to to see that the people who put it through did so for you know very narrow uh, interests, kind of the Hamiltonian uh, uh, faction of things. We talked about that with Patrick Newman a couple uh, episodes back. So that's because they can't keep everybody in line. They come up with a a mythology, an ethos, a uh, a belief that everybody. Um, comes to believe. And, and that's kind of what we're left with today, because a lot of, uh, as libertarians, when we do bring up an idea or we say we're a, an anarcho-capitalist or something, you know, the, the cliche thing is, well, who will build the roads? And so people automatically will come back at you with, well, but government does that. And there's only, there's all these reasons why only government could do this. And so I think as libertarians, whenever we talk to normal people, and I don't look down on normal people because, you know, they're normal and they've been taught this and it's very hard to educate somebody out of something that has seemed so fundamental to them that uh, this is the kind of the original point I wanted to make is that the, the whole democracy, the sort of the, the rhetorical trick with democracy is that, Oh, no longer are you being ruled by uh, a King or um you know, a, a family or something like that, you're, you have a part in this, you vote, the government is you. And so the, the ruling class kind of, that's a new sort of ideological weapon that they've used to convince people that they really have a part in all this. And so, Hey, if you don't vote, you have, don't have a right to complain, but if you do vote and you know, sometimes you lose, but that's, that's just how it goes. Yeah, I think that the the lesson of all this is that power corrupts, like Lord mm-hmm. Acton said. And but not only that power corrupts kings and presidents, but pow- power also corrupts um, whole peoples. That um, that that like Bastiat talked about mm-hmm. how in in the law, Frederick Bastiat talked about how you know the the old order was um, was legal plunder of the ruling class plundering. The, the many, but the, the risk in a democracy is for that to become universal plunder, that, um, that everyone in, is trying to use the state, use their, their, their popular, um, their, you know, their, their ability to participate in, in the government to, um, as a weapon uh, to plunder other people for their, for their own benefit. And, and, and so that's corrupting. Yeah. Uh, I think the one I don't I think it was from the law, but maybe somewhere else. But the quote from Bastiat uh, that kind of sums up in one sense, one sentence is the state is that great fiction by which everyone attempts to live at the expense of everyone else. And so 
uh, you know, I know where, where I live here in uh, Knoxville, uh, the next town over is Oak Ridge, where a lot of people are, are um, employed by the, you know, the nuclear power stuff. I forget all the little names of the departments, but, you know, TVA, uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and is kind of linked in with all that. And so all these good people who have good jobs using good skills, if you talk about upset, well, the government, of course, has to do that. And so everyone, whether they have a sophisticated opinion of government or not, they they have a vested interest in keeping the whole thing going because, well, if you if you if we did away with the income tax and cut the federal money, then then they're going to have to close down this lab. You know, so even people who are we think sometimes I think conservatives and libertarians um, from the right kind of characterize uh, people trying to live at someone else's expense. Oh, that that's like a uh, welfare moms or, uh, you know, people who don't want to pay off their college loans or something like that. Well, it's, it's regular middle-class people who are having what's all, you know, doing honest work, but it, they're, everybody's enmeshed in this system. And so the question is, how do we get out of it? And so like in your estimation, what was, what was Ron Paul's uh, solution for that? And um, were there any drawbacks? Like what would, what would have been the next step had he been uh, uh, elected president uh, and started a, a political movement that let's say the Republican party was, you know, half of them, you know, became Ron Paulians. Well, how do, how do we unspool things uh, then? And uh, yeah. So like, what's the next step? We realize this is, the problem now. Now, what do we do from a Ron Paulian perspective? Yeah, honestly, I don't know what would have happened if um, if if that had happened because I I am really because like I said, power corrupts and um, and and it can corrupt libertarians mm-hmm. like it, it has before. I'm not saying that it would have corrupted Ron Paul um, because he seems very incorruptible, um, but. But I, I do wonder if that would have been premature if, mm-hmm. if, if, if like somehow um, like a libertarian um, regime was swept into power that if a lot of like the libertarian like office holders would have been corrupted by that power, mm-hmm. especially because there wasn't enough of what Leonard Reed called, called a foundation of of an actual understanding among the people mm-hmm. of, of what freedom really means uh in in order to support that because um because like what Leonard Reed said that if um that that pol- the that the out front people like the politicians that that they're they're like thermometers that they mm-hmm. that they ultimately um are the, the parameters that within which they act are set by the, the temperature, which which is like the the the, the opinion, the influential opinion um, of over the people, and if that opinion is interventionist, we will have interventionist mm-hmm. um, r- rulers, like like n- no matter what, uh, and and he said that no matter what labels those intervention the, those rulers give themselves, libertarian or or whatnot, like it'll still be interventionist. Policies, and and we've seen that in history before. That the reason why we had to adopt this makeshift title of libertarian is because the old word for mm-hmm. our beliefs, which is liberalism, that that was corrupted, and it was because the liberal party, like especially in um, in in Britain, that because public opinion became interventionist, um, the the liberal party became hugely interventionist. And, um, and so then, and then throughout the world, then liberalism has become, come to mean the opposite of what it originally meant. And, and so I think that's like another example of, of how, of how power corrupts. And, um, and so again, that's why I I really like Michael Heiss's emphasis on, um, on pol- politics, not not so much about like seizing power, uh, seizing political office, but about using it as a platform for the ideas. Yeah, so that's what really inspires me. Yeah, and so that kind of uh, 
ports us right over to the uh, other article um, that you called my attention to. It's uh, back for back in August uh, called when meddlers run amok. And you just said, you know, putting the right people in office, the first subhead in your story is the office swap solution and, and why, uh, why you think that might not be sufficient. So tell us what you mean by that. Right. So that in his book in Leonard Reed's book, um, elements of libertarian leadership, um, he has a chapter called booby traps. Uh, about pitfalls that um, libertarians often fall into. And one of those was he called the booby trap of political action. That he said that there, it's not that there's anything in his opinion wrong with political action per se, but it's just this notion that if we just get the quote unquote right people in office, that that will solve the problem. But but again, and this is where he said that, that ultimately what matters is... Um, it is the ideological groundwork of the population. And if, if that groundwork hasn't been done, if, if people are um, interventionist and statist in, in their inclination, it doesn't matter like who, who we get into office. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and especially because that oftentimes that people who might be well-meaning once they get involved, that they can become corrupted by, um, by, by, by that power and by um, the temptation to, to um, um, sway with the wind, to, to, yep. to go along with the interventionist public opinion because that's the route to political success at yeah. that point. So tell us what you mean by meddler in this concept because this is uh, something that I've thought a lot about um, as far as uh, uh, it's the, the sentence, uh, says the solution that gets the most attention is direct political change, remove the mass meddlers from power and replace them with leaders who respect Liberty. So it's talk about the type of person who does, uh, seem to be in power, um, most of the time and what motivates them. Sure. So yeah, meddler is just another word for interventionist and, um, and from the libertarian perspective, that um, that meddling means going beyond your proper um, realm of action and in, in encroaching on someone else's realm of action. In other words, encroaching on their rights, um, encroaching on their their person and, and, or property. Whether you do that as a common criminal or whether you do that as an agent of, of government. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, what we're seeing now is meddlers run amok because like, um, with the lockdowns, that was hugely meddlesome of, of just getting all up in people's business and telling them that they can't even leave, leave their house, uh, that they can't even conduct their, their business anymore and and always like the meddler's excuse is that it's for your own good um and um and that you have to have a certain you have to go undergo a certain medical treatment um and um and but but that's and that was just like one example in like foreign pol policy meddling um in um in, in environmental meddling like mm -hmm. it's it, it is it is run amok and and it's because of the meddlesome um, I ideas that are holding sway over the people. Yeah. I think uh, uh, it's, again, there's a lot of well-intentioned people who are like that. And I, I look back at my just, you know, public school education. And, and even now I, uh, I'm a freelance editor and a big chunk of my work is, um, uh, college and sometimes high, high school and junior high type textbooks and test materials. And when there are vignettes uh, in say like a, uh, uh, like an English or, or something, social studies uh, course, uh, you know, the student is asked to read a, a little story and then analyze the story. And the stories are inevitably uh, overwhelmingly, a lot of them are about like social reformers in the past or they're like fictionalized thing about this little kid who, 
you know, sees the, the beach is dirty. And so therefore he goes right to the city council and all that stuff is, and, and I know it was kind of that way as I grew up that, you know, the, it was always, Hey, you want to be a part of things. You want to make the world a better place. And to do that, that means participating in government. And so just societally, again, from the ideas, the idea is not, Hey, find a way to, to do this peacefully and convince people it's, Oh, we have the government, we're part of the government, let's just go pass a law. And so I think people who um, are are already sort of naturally inclined that way, and then they're indoctrinated that way. And so, of course, if I want to solve a problem, it means I have to get elected to Congress or uh, lobby my school board or, or something like that. So it's very hard to, um, it's very hard to to break through that because, and I think sometimes libertarians, we get it wrong because we critic, we come at people with all the reasons why they're wrong, but if they have legitimately good intentions and we're telling them they're bad people, like that's a, that's a hard trap to get out of. I mean, you have to, again, try to educate them on, Hey, there are better solutions. And and then we're kind of, to me, back, back at square one, it, it's very, it's very difficult. So I think that's what the, the local, you know, the project decentralized revolution strategy is to run at the local level, uh, introduce uh, libertarian measures that are already popular. So like if you're in my county of Knox County, you're probably not going to want to lead with trying to legalize, uh, you know, psychedelics or something like that. Although these days you might even win in a place like this, but it'd be far better to do a gun sanctuary type thing here. Whereas the thing we, we helped pass in Denver a couple of years ago on shrooms was, uh, you know, Denver is, you know, is more amenable to those ideas. So if we can show people the libertarian solution that they already agree with on one issue, put it into place, build relationships with them. And so when the next issue comes along, then you, you might have some credibility with them uh, for them to listen to your ideas about uh, privatization or uh, decriminalization or nullification or something like that. Yeah, I'm a big fan of localism, broadly speaking, of like when you want to, it's like uh, Jordan Peterson's message that if you want to change the world, start as locally as possible mm -hmm. uh, and, and build your domain of competence out, out from there. Because like the, the kind of um, social reformer type mindset that you were talking about, that it's not, it's you're right that it's not just a function of intellectual error. There's also a bit of an emotional hangup there. Um, like there, there's a Bastiat quote that I have in my Medler's article where he says, you who wish to reform everything, why don't you reform yourselves? That would, that task would be sufficient enough. Um, and, and uh, Leonard Reed also said that, um, th that those, those who are, um, uh, those who refuse to rule themselves are usually bent on ruling others. Those who can rule themselves usually have no interest in ruling others. And, and so I think that, um, that, that that message is really powerful. And, and I think that's a big reason why Jordan Peterson's clean your room message is, is so powerful because a, a lot of the times that the, this impulse to reform the world is an evasion of personal responsibility for reforming themselves, yeah. and 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 if and if you can um, and and so it's sort of like a coping mechanism, and um, and so if if people are wedded to that coping mechanism, they're they're going to be impervious to um, arguments about um, you know the viability of their ideas on a social scale. But if you speak to where where they're at, which is about like, okay, well, this is about making me feel better and, and tell them that actually you're, th this is not making you feel better. That, that the more that you are um, evading your own personal responsibility and evading reforming your, yourself, um, then, then the, um, the less happy you will be because the more chaotic your life will be. And maybe that's why um, that the left, uh, what it is today, the progressive or even, I don't know, they've kind of <clears throat> morphed into something even worse, I think, 
you know, it's how they, um, the incremental nature of their approach, which is, um, you know, not to, uh, you know, okay, legalize gay marriage today and, you know, 10, 15 years later, you know, subsidize and promote uh, sex change uh, surgeries for 12 year olds and, and hormone replacement. And it, it never, it never stops, right? They're always outraged about something and they're always wanting to expand the state into something else. And it's always couched in we're we're helping people, we're liberating them, we're protecting them. But it, it at some point, I think that your point about they're, they're evading something in themselves. And I think libertarians, you know, sometimes we retreat into ideology too. But I think that, that there may be something to that, that they don't want to work on themselves uh, or their own families and communities. And so to fill that hole of I'm, I'm a good person, I'm doing something, which means I have to, to continually uh, push the envelope into making society what I want it to be from my emotional uh, perspective. And that's why, you know, that's, it's very hard to coming up against someone like that. That's why I think a lot of the, the leftist cultural stuff that is being pushed by the state and by academia and other institutions these days, it's because I think a lot of times people are, don't want to offend someone that they're not willing to stand up and say, no, maybe we shouldn't make this mandatory or maybe we shouldn't go this far. Uh, it's, uh, it's out of, I think, concern and, and not wanting to be seen as insensitive or to hurt someone's feelings. Um, and so, there's another point that you're know, going to a Jordan Peterson and, you know, sort of maybe even a traditional uh, religious outlook would be is, you know, if you don't um, order your own affairs, then you're going to have uh, everyone around you is going to sort of pay the cost for that. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and Leonard Reed taught that too, like, cause like you mentioned that sometimes libertarians fall into this trap too. And so Leonard Reed really taught that right method in promoting the ideas of liberty is first and foremost, tending to your own candle. First and foremost, not, not taking it upon yourself a mission to reform other people, to, um, to reform yourself, to develop your own mastery of the freedom philosophy. And when you talk to other people about it, do that in the spirit of truth seeking and, and trying to um, trying to work out the truth yourself, because that's contagious. When people see that you're an, an earnest devotee of the truth and you're just trying to figure things out, then they want to emulate that. But when when obviously you have like an axe to grind and, and when you just want to win the argument and, and reform the other person, in, in your own image, then they, they put up walls against that, that, that mm -hmm. people can detect that. And, um, and then they, they end up clinging to their beliefs even um, all the more. Yeah. Uh, this uh, might be a good time to ask you, I didn't necessarily have this on my uh, agenda going in, but uh, the whole, I think the, what's called the post-libertarian thing is that there are some people who used to be libertarians, um, uh, some more recently than others who are basically saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mises and Rothbard and, and uh, Bastiat were right, but things are so bad now that the state is becoming so fascistic and uh, uh, socialistic that for some of them have sort of permanently renounced non-aggression. Some of them, I can't quite tell, but it's the implicit thing is like, well, we need to abandon that traditional libertarian ethics for now. And then once we get government down to a, a good enough size, then maybe we can go back to that. So is that maybe, were you warning against that? Uh, there's a line, uh, for example, we must uh, be aware, uh, but in so doing, we must be wary of fighting fire with fire of meddling with the meddlers for example, we must never use government intervention for cheap wins against interventionists, for then we become what we hate. Are you seeing some of the same thing I'm seeing that libertarians uh, or ex-libertarians are, are maybe falling into that trap? 
Yes, um, and there's another um, article I wrote called um, "Are We Living in a Cacistocracy," mm -hmm. uh, which is a term for government by the worst. Um, because in in that um, article, I, I quote another Leonard Reed passage where he talks about the importance of uh, focusing on the ideas and um, and not um, the enemy, like mm -hmm. not, not like an enemy class, because once you it once it becomes like a, a a siege mentality of just like my allies versus versus my enemies and not about the, the principles then that then it's like anything goes because because then anything that that hurts your enemy is is fair game and before you know it you've um abandoned the thing that you set out to do and then you end up becoming more and more like your enemy because in that game, uh, once you start playing that game, you're, you're going to want to take every advantage and then you, you're going to, um, it's, it's not going to stop at necessarily at any, any sort of like, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll go this, this far because we, we need to. But once you've abandoned the principle, it's like, why not go farther? Mm -hmm. like, um, and, and so I, I think that's why um, that that's why the philosophy is so important and the and the understanding of it is so important because um, because ultimately if if we if we sell our soul for victory then um, then we've uh, then it's not a victory worth having yeah and I, I think that uh, that's part of again the decentralized uh, revolution strategy the the key thing of, of nullification so like let's say we did somehow uh, get um, uh, let's say Ron Paul was 20 years younger we ran him for the presidency next year and we won and like you know 10 percent of the people uh, became you know fully ANCAP and you know another 20 or 30 were amenable to libertarian ideas um, and you know we did that then the pushback I think would be pretty great. I mean, we might have a, a Dallas 1963 situation. Uh, we might have what we had with Trump, which, you know, Trump had, you know, very few good ideas, um, but he was outside the mainstream. And so they, even the people he appointed just basically didn't get on board with him. The deep state shut him out. Uh, they framed him for Russiagate and here we are. Um, so if we go after the big prize, I think the, the, the repercussions come quickly, but like if we, I think the strategy of nullification is so powerful and maybe the key to this whole thing uh, of if we can get into people's minds that there's no reason why Knoxville should be the same as Atlanta or uh, Sacramento uh, or Boston, and it's okay to just ignore uh, a law. And that's kind of going to the, um, you know, civil disobedience, peaceful noncompliance. I'm almost like I'm about 99 and a half percent a pacifist uh, for both, you know, moral reasons and practical reasons. But I, I again, I just, I, I feel dirty when I uh, used to be on social media and really get into these knock down drag outs and it's like and that's just a microcosm of what you know the the political world can be and it's like if i if i i don't think we could win with the post-libertarian strategy but even if we did i think before we won we would become darth vader you know so right. I, if, if i'm gonna lose i'd rather lose and be obi-wan kenobi and ultimately i think that that strategy will be the winner just because if the system starts to fall apart, um, it's hard to put it back together again. And it may not, it's not going to be perfect, but it'll be better. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I really think of civil disobedience as um, localism applied to nullification. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and that's why, um, that's why uh, the withholding taxes, uh, uh, and the uh, digitization of payroll and all that stuff is so important uh, because people could just say, yeah, I'm not going to file. Like if 10% of the, even today, if 10% of people just didn't file their taxes and tried to, to do that, uh, they couldn't get everybody, you know? So it goes back to full circle to what we were talking about is sometimes the people, and I think Mises even says this, 
is that, uh, and maybe even Rothbard too, is sometimes the consent is tacit consent or like, yeah, I'm going to go along with it because I just don't want to pay the cost of trying to start a, a revolution or whatever. So that's mm-hmm. part of the reason why if the, if that mythology works on most people, then the people who would be inclined to change something, are they really going to put their necks on the line uh, for that? So that's why I think we have to give people a, a it, unfortunately it's a longer term strategy. There's no quick uh, wins, um, but I think it's ultimately a more sort of uh, anti-fragile type of uh, approach. Right. And, and there's an educational aspect to civil disobedience too, because it is a testament to the convictions of, of the person who's mm-hmm. practicing civil disobedience. And, and I think that's been borne out by, by history, that, uh, that movements that practiced civil disobedience, that, that it, it garnered huge support and, and huge, huge curiosity in, in, the, in those ideas, and it's not corrupting. Uh, and and that, that, that's what's different about, um, about, about trying to use the, the, the power of the state uh, for, for your ideas because, because that is corrupting. And ultimately, that, um, um, that, that invites not emulation, but disgust at, at you and, and your ideas. Right. Or at least, you know, fear and disgust. And it just, it's a toxic, you know, not to, that's an overused word uh, these days, but it, it really, I think, eats away at you if you give into that. Um, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I'm, I'm interested. I don't think I was ever fully aware of, uh, I'm trying to find it in the articles now, the, the, was it called elements of liberty? Yeah. Elements of libertarian leadership. So talk about that. I'll, I'll do a link, um, uh, uh, in the show notes page to how people can get that. Tell, tell us how you can get it. And maybe let's talk about another, uh, idea uh, that you think uh, people might be uh, uh, enlightened by b- before we before we head out. Sure. Yeah. So you can find elements of libertarian leadership on fee.org. So if you just plug into this um, like site colon fee.org in, into a search engine, and then elements of libertarian leadership, we have it uh, um, in HTML format, but we also have it in in ebook format, and it's basically Leonard Reed's uh, handbook on on the strategy of liberty, um, so um, so he um, he says that there's a there's a freedom philosophy and then there's a freedom methodology and and the the two are are very interlinked um, because you can't um, pursue the metho- methodology of freedom while violating the the philosophy of freedom, um, but but he um, the, it's it's his it's his textbook for that and and in that he really um, teaches that leadership is is basically education and that education is basically self-improvement that that, mm-hmm. that education is contagious learning um, and and that when you learn out loud that um, that people want to emulate your your learning um, and 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 I think you know that that's the success of, of Ron Paul that that he um, you know he was really devoted to these ideas and so he was articulating these ideas and obviously had a clear understanding of them and that inspired so many to um, uh, to, to emulate that um, and and it it's it's really really the path forward and so so yeah so like full, full disclosure like I'm um, you know my, um, I'm I'm a, what what Michael Heiss called a, an, an apolitical anarchist um, mm-hmm. and and so I'm I'm very worried about power corrupting like anybody like even even the, even the libertarian party and even even the Mises caucus of, of the libertarian party yep. and um, but um, and and so like I really believe uh, in in uh, the power of ideas and and that's all that fees about too that fee um, is is also like an apolitical organization institutionally um, and um, and but but I really like the fact that that Michael Heiss is um, using uh, the Libertarian Party as a, a platform for teaching the these ideas because I think the more that the the 
that people in the party um, focus on the ideas and focus on self-improvement, the, the less liable they will be to fall prey to the, the corrupting influence of, of, of the pursuit of, of office. Right. And ultimately, too, that's part of the, the decentralization uh, strategy is that, you know, if uh, the governor of uh, uh, Alabama goes off the, the the fictional future libertarian governor of Alabama goes off the rails, well, Tennessee is still free and California is still doing their own thing. It's uh, it's, you know, w- with power being corrupting, you know, the concentration of power becomes all that much more dangerous. And so, uh, you know, I, I agree that uh, I, I'm, a, I'm actually glad that there are, there are some people who are sort of the apolitical anarchists or libertarians who are really kind of annoying and um, smug about it. It's like, oh yeah, you're, you might as well be a socialist because you are Ron, Paul, Ron Paul's supporter. But the, I actually like that there's a few people like, you know, Bob Murphy is one who, is this like, eh, you know, I like that we have that angel on our shoulder uh, kind of uh, reminding us, um, uh, you know, of that, uh, of that danger. And I think that to kind of wrap it up of um, it's that, yeah, uh, edu- self-improvement and education being something that kind of go hand in hand is that, you know, you said that it usually begins with Ron Paul And so many people describe the Giuliani moment, which is, what was that? It was uh, someone uh, on Fox News, I think it was the Fox News host, uh, uh, a hostile audience against a guy who was at that time still kind of a national hero for what he did on 9-11. And uh, it was just this one, this old guy, like, like, no, you're wrong. And we need to rethink this. And he wasn't being a jerk about it, but he was being very firm. And there are a lot of people of the left, um, you know, people who are very sort of neocon, who just started to Google Ron Paul based on one act of courage, which, you know, looking back, maybe that's not as courageous as, you know, Gandhi or, you know, some civil rights people or whatever, because no one was going to, you know, uh, haul Ron off to jail or beat him with a billy club. But still, like, just think of getting up in front of thousand, you know, a couple thousand people in person, and millions of people uh, on TV, and basically being willing to be booed <laughs> and hooted by everybody, including other, pow- you know, more powerful politicians. So, you know, courage is courageous. Uh, sorry, courage is contagious, and uh, and the more we improve ourselves and clean our own rooms, the more I think we'll be able to to have the courage in those moments to, to do what we need to do, even if it's at a city council meeting or, or something like that. Yeah. Conviction is contagious. That, that I think that's what's so powerful of, about that moment that, that turned the light bulb on for so many people is that Ron Paul said something that at the time was so unpopular and was so like, quote unquote, politically inexpedient, but it was the truth. And he, and he believed it. So he used that as an opportunity to explain blowback, to explain the, the phenomenon of blowback in, in foreign policy. And that ultimately um, educated so many people about the freedom philosophy. Yeah. And um, and so I, I, I agree that I, I really, well, that's another thing that I appreciate about Michael Heiss's um, v- vision is that it encompasses uh, he, uh, community that includes people who are principled anti-voters. Like, yeah. like that, that he, he wants like conversations among like anti-voters and like pro-voters and, and dialogue and learning from each other. So I really like that too. And, and just also as a disclaimer, although I personally am an anti-voting anarchist, that's not like fees, um, um, institutional position, he doesn't right. take an institutional position on that. Like ever since our founding, like, like Leonard Reed was a minarchist, but, uh, and then Baldy Harper, what one of the, um, early, staff people what was an anarchist so so there, there's always been sort of like uh again like a community and a dialogue of, of people of, of different um uh ideas learning from each other yeah and i and that's uh, been our thing with the mises caucus too of not only within the libertarian movement with potential coalition partners like the people's party which you know is the 
co-sponsor of the the rally in Washington uh, on February 19th, it's like, I'm sure we disagree with a lot of their stuff. I haven't even looked, but like if they're anti-war and they're good faith people who are not going to slander people and uh, do unethical things, like I, I think we should be talking and, and working with when we can with anybody who is not, you know, a, 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 a bad faith actor. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'm glad I, I hope to uh, be able to, uh, I'm definitely going to take a closer look at fee. Uh, I've been, you know, I occasionally go and look, but I'm going to look more now at, at your stuff after this uh, conversation. I encourage other people to do the same. Uh, go to the show notes page um, and uh, we will have links to what you're doing. Uh, just before we go, is there anything uh, maybe that kind of out of the realm of what we're talking about today that you've written recently about, or uh, just a teaser of what something that might be coming up that something interesting you uh, right now? Well, it, it is related, but well, that's okay. We had a, had a publication uh, notes from fee um, and legacy of light is the uh, feature article by me. Uh, and that, that we also have the PDF of this and, um, and it's one of the recent articles on, on the fee website. If you go to uh, fee.org slash archive um, this, this article legacy of light, I, I talk about Leonard Reed and about his candle presentation so so that that'll be a good place to start for people to start. okay yeah we'll have we'll have the links up there and uh, uh don't be a stranger and uh hopefully in real life maybe one of our events uh, either as a participant or just a spectator will uh uh you can come by and say hello but uh um yeah i, I really appreciate uh, your work and uh and again fee uh you know especially when i got into this back in the mid 90s that that was there were a few outlets then, but uh, fee was definitely at the top of the list and uh, still doing great work today. So thanks for all that. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for having me. It was great talking to you. All right, there you have it. I'd like to thank Dan Sanchez for his time, his wisdom, for his dozens and dozens and dozens of uh, articles and all the projects he's been a part of in his career uh, promoting liberty at uh, FEE, Foundation for Economic Education, uh, with the Mises Institute and uh, just on his own. Um, he, he's a really great guy who I, I'd kind of known a little bit about him before this, but uh, um, I know a lot more about him now and uh, I'm glad I do. So go over to decentralizedrevolution.com slash 103. That's the show notes page. You can find out more about him and what we talked about uh, over there. Thanks to my co-producer, Simon Kalpin, and thanks to Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. Um, thanks to everyone who subscribes to that uh, email list and gives to Mises Pack at TakeHumanAction.com. Just go over there. Uh, you can give a monthly uh, contribution. You can give a one-time gift. Um, if you want to make a bigger donation to the Super Pack, um, uh, just uh, go over to TakeHumanAction.com, sign up for the email list, and uh, uh, you know indicate that when you sign up, and we can uh, get in touch with you. But uh, there's all kinds of ways to help the, the Mises Caucus and uh, getting involved uh, with your chapter in your state is uh, really the first step for most people. And again, takehumanaction.com, that's where you get signed up to do that. And uh, thanks to everyone who shares, rates, reviews, and subscribes to Decentralized Revolution. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.